The end of Gemara Makas tells us two amazing stories about Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues, how they viewed the destruction of the Beis Amikdash, the revolutionary approach and insight that Rabbi Akiva taught them and teaches us, which is reflected in the double expression, Nachamu, Nachamu, how there is a double layer of consolation at this time of the year. Etem kefal l'shein Looking at that double expression, the beginning of the Aftarah, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami Yomer, Lekechem, the Medrash, the Medrash says, why does it say Nachamu, that Hashem will comfort us twice? Loko Bechiflayim, says the Medrash, we were smitten twice with the destruction of two Batei Migdash, and therefore, Umisnachem in Bechiflayim, we can anticipate a double comfort from Hashem. In other words, as the Inyan Anichum Betzayin Kofel, there's this concept of a double comfort. We have to understand what it is. Dav from Fashtein Vos is the main Betoichem for Nechom Bichiflaim. What exactly do we mean by a double comfort? Oleidach is Yudu Adi Kushia Bepashtus. And then there's another very simple, straightforward question, which is, what is the chiddush as misnachmim bechiflaim? What is the big deal if we're getting a double comfort, considering vibaldas is given bechiflaim that we were struck, struck twice? Well, obviously, if we're struck twice, we anticipate two. Uh, responses to comforts for that. So to understand this concept of Nechama Bichiflaim, what it actually means, we're going to look at the end of Gemara Makis, because there we're going to discover a story where we also have this expression of comfort used as a doubled phrase where the sages turn to Rabbi Akiva and they say, Akiva nicham tonu, Akiva nicham tonu. Twice they say, Rabbi Akiva, you have comforted us. The context over there is also looking at the destruction of the Beis Amikdash and the subsequent Golos. And it's in response to that we have this double expression of comfort. Maybe it holds the secret to knowing what double comfort is. Especially since we know that things which are recorded in the Psukim are best explained in Teresh That's exactly what's going to happen over here. The Pasuk Nachamu Nachamu will come to light based on a story in Teresh of Nachamu. Here are the two stories. The Gemara tells us at the end of Makis, there were four sages traveling. They heard this great festive sound coming from one of the main areas, either main buildings or cities in Rome, and they heard it from 120 mil away. And that bothered them. They began to cry, whereas Rabbi Akiva Masachik, Rabbi Akiva was pleased. He was joyous. So they said to him, well, why are you joyous at this point in time? He said, well, why don't you tell me why you are crying? They said, well, that should be quite obvious. Uh, so, so they said to him, and look at this. These lowly people who serve idols and bring them various offerings, and they're living in security and in tranquility. Whereas we, our godly home has been destroyed and burnt in fire. Is that not a reason for us to cry? So he said, that's exactly why I'm joyous at this point, because I figure, if this is the security and tranquility that Hashem gives to those who go against Him, can you only imagine the kind of bracha that He has lined up for us who do what Hashem wants? Story one. Second story, there was a time that now these same sages were approaching Yerushalayim, when they got to Mount Scopus, they could see the Harabai, so they ripped their clothing as Halacha requires. But then came when they actually reached Harabais, they saw a terrible sight. They saw a fox come darting out from where once the Kodesh HaKadoshim had stood. So those rabbis began to cry immediately. Rabbi Kiva Masachik and Rabbi Kiva rejoiced. And again they said to him, Why are you rejoicing? To which he responded again, Why are you crying? They said, what are you talking about? This is the place on earth that the Torah warns us that if a person is a non koyan and they approach this place, they deserve chas Now there's foxes running around freely over here without any response. And we shouldn't cry. That's actually why I'm so joyous. Because there's a pasuk in Yeshaya that says, that Yeshaya Navi says, I'm bringing two trustworthy witnesses. Who are the witnesses? It's Uriah, 
the, the prophets Uriah and Zechariah. Well, what's the connection between the two of them? Uriah lived at the time of the first base Amigdash, and Zechariah at the time of the second base Amigdash. Therefore, Rabbi Kiva says, actually what the Torah is doing for us over here, what Yeshaya is doing is he's saying the prophecy of Zechariah is contingent on the fulfillment of the prophecy of Uriah. But Uriah, what's Uriah's prophecy? He warns us, He says that, that uh, Tzion, the, the site of the base of Amigdash, will be plowed over like a field. In other words, he prophesies the destruction of the base of Amigdash. And Zechariah prophesies that there will be Elderly, elderly people sitting again, filling the streets of Yerushalayim. As long as Uriah's prophecy of destruction hadn't been fulfilled, I was concerned perhaps Zechariah's prophecy of restoration would not be fulfilled. Now that I see, look, here we're a witness to the fact that Uriah's prophecy happened. Therefore, we can now be confident that Zechariah's promise of restoration will also be fulfilled. They heard what he had to say. And what did they say to him? You have comforted us. You have comforted us. That's, those are the stories. Now, we do know, of course, we're reading stories. So therefore, that falls into the category of Agada areas of the Gemara. Generally speaking, Agada is not the source from which we derive halachic principles. Still, if there were to be a contradiction between a black and white halacha and a story in Agada, we would not use the Agada to override halacha. But in our case over here with this, just an Agada in and of itself. Abrobes is neat can steer, and there's no contradiction between this story and any principles of halacha that we know. So let me hear opinion halacha from Agadim and philosophy. Then we can actually learn things out of the Agadic part of the Gemara, and we can even rely on the things that we've learned, especially in this particular context, because because even if you want to argue that you can't decide halacha based on a story in the Gemara, we can definitely derive out of that story a particular approach or a way of thinking about a halacha based on how the story played out, and especially in our case, we're not just telling a an insight, which is an agadic insight. Now, Amaiserav, we're telling a story that actually happened with great Jewish leaders. Amaiser Bepoel, a practical story. We're looking at the greatest halachic leaders of the time and how they behave. That surely could teach us a lesson in how we should conduct ourselves. Especially when you consider the Brisa quoted over there in the Gemara tells us who these sages were and includes as the central character Rabbi Akiva who is the pivot that the entire Torah Shabbal Peh and the whole of Aloche is really built on. So therefore, it's more of a You can simply understand, as in them, that between the different personalities and what they say and do in the story, those definitely give us insights into how we should think about certain halachic issues. Especially in the second story, it doesn't just tell us about their attitudes, whether they were crying or rejoicing, but we actually see an activity and behavior that they displayed, which is halachically a lesson to us, namely, when they came within sight of the Harabais, they ripped their clothes, which is in fact translated into halacha. That's how we are supposed to behave. So if there is the possibility of halachic thinking that went into the story, we're going to analyze the difference of opinion between Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues. What is the basis for their different view? And you'll see that there is an halachic basis for their respective views. So we need to analyze what is the basis of the apparent dispute between Rabbi Kiva and his colleagues. Not just philosophically, but halachically, what are the differences of opinion? How come it is that Rabbi Akiva and his, and his colleagues 
have such varied opinions, in fact, extreme opinions, right? I mean, akotzer, akotzer, because from boichin to mesachik, one response is that the appropriate thing to do here is to cry and the other is to rejoice. How did they arrive at those conclusions? Even though the end of the story is that they acknowledge that Rabbi Akiva has comforted them, so even after they feel that Rabbi Akiva has made a compelling point, the fact that they initially believed the correct response was to cry has an halachic basis. We need to know what that halachic basis is. And especially when you look at the first story, in the first story, we don't see an acknowledgement of these sages to Rabbi Akiva. In fact, whatever Rabbi Akiva must have told them at the first occasion where he said, well, just, just wait and see what Abishta has in store for us, apparently wasn't enough to stop them crying the next time around. So what are the halachic principles on which the argument is built. In order to get there, we're going to analyze the story and look at a whole series of details in the story, many of which don't really seem to make sense at first glance. Here are some of the things that we have to analyze. Number one, Aleph. Why is Rabbi Kiva so surprised that he says, why are you crying? Any thinking person can acknowledge that when you hear the great celebration and festivity in Rome, Rome who destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, and in the second story where they're actually looking at the terrible ruinous state of the Beis HaMikdash to the extent that Shul, there's a fox running around over there, any person with a heart should feel a sense of mourning and should burst into tears. Why is Rabbi Kiva so surprised? Question two, it also doesn't make sense. When we're told in the second story, that they ripped their clothes when they saw the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, it would seem very simply from the way the words are placed, it would appear that Rabbi Kiva also tore his garments. There's nothing in the story that indicates that he didn't. That implies that Rebbe Kiva did show grieving over the destruction of the Beis Amigdash. So if he also tears his clothes as a sign of mourning the Beis Amigdash, his voice fretted the Why then is he challenging the others and saying, Why are you crying? Now, also, a technical thing the response that they give him and the Pasuk that they use does not seem to be the best choice of Pasuk. Thirdly, Gimel, the Pasuk that says that a non koyen who comes close to the Beis Amikdash will die, is actually not describing a prohibition against going inside the Kedosh HaKadoshim. Instead, it is telling us that a non koyen is not allowed to serve in any of the Avoida of the Beis Amikdash. And that's not the issue at hand. If the goal of these rabbis was to highlight that nobody is supposed to be in this place, let alone a fox, they should have quoted a better pasuk, which is, even the Kohen Gadol cannot go into the Kodesh HaKadoshim whenever he wants. That's a really compelling passage because it says even the Koyan Gadol who has rights to enter the Kodesh HaKadoshim may not do so if it's not on Yom Kippur and if it's not during the time of the Avoidah. Next question. Why does Rabbi Akiva suspect that a positive prophecy may not be fulfilled? Dalit. What is the Kasaka Daitach from Rabbi Akiva? What's Rabbi Akiva's thinking? I was worried without Uriah's prophecy being fulfilled, maybe Zechariah's also wouldn't be fulfilled. How could Rabbi Akiva have any doubt that a prophecy won't happen? Especially when we know that the Gemara Brachas tells us that any prophecy, any word of God which has a positive message, even if the positive message is contingent on some tznai, on some condition, it still has to happen. 
Next thing, if Rabbi Akiva wants to show that there's this terrible thing, the destruction of the Beis Amigdash, and yet there's a prophecy of restoration, why did he choose the particular pasuk he chose? Why does he choose Dafka? That prophecy about plowing over the Beis Amigdash or need can there are unfortunately many in a voice that talk about the destruction of the base Amigdash that he could have quoted. Now the interesting thing, why does the Gemara feel it's necessary for us to know who the other rabbis were? Why does the Gemara tell us the names of all the Tanoim? What's most important in the story is that Rabbi Kiva had a different perspective and therefore a different way of conducting himself to his colleagues. So the Gemara could have left a generic, as it does in many other stories of Rabbi Akiva. Could have just said Rabbi Akiva and other sages. Also, Zion. Why were the sages only willing to say that Rabbi Akiva, you comforted us in the second story? Unit by the Mershon, Rabbi Akiva made a really good point in the first story too. How come that didn't comfort them? And our last question is why the what seems to be convoluted language of Yeches with this expression they said to him, that Akiva, you. Uh, comforted us. Vosit akei for kol aloshen. Firstly, what is to have akiv nicham tonu twice? On the bavornish as beloshen hazeh omru loy. What does the gemara have to say? This is the phrase that they used. So the marsha zok to ifem kushes zayin veches. The marsha does address those last two questions and says kofla advarim hashem shnei hamaisim shezochar that actually it's a double expression. You comforted us twice because there were two occasions, and now it's referring retroactively also to the first story as well. But even if we go with the Marashah's explanation, it's not 100% clear because these two occasions were in different places at different times. The first story was on a trip to Rome, travel in those days took long. And the other story is when they were coming back to Yerushalayim or coming to Yerushalayim another time. Must have been a very significant time difference between the two stories. How could the Marashah then argue that Akiva Nechamtoni is actually referring to two different stories that occurred at two different times and were all answered and dealt with at that second time? There's got to be more to the story. So we'll try and explain. Oh, it's really simple. We get it. Rabbi Akiva is the person who taught that everything that happens is for the good. Maybe the answer, the easiest way to answer this would be, we see that there is a difference of opinion between Rabbi Akiva and the other three rabbis. It looks like the other rabbis focused on the negative of the stories. Whereas Rabbi Akiva was able to detect and focus also on the positive in the story. And Rabbi Kiva would do so because that is actually his outlook generally on life. As we know the very well-known story also in Brochus where the Gemara tells us that Rabbi Kiva said a person should always be used to saying whatever Hashem does is for the good. The Gemara tells the well-known story of Rabbi Kiva with his donkey and his Rooster and his candle, and how it all turned out for the good, even though he lost all of those things. Ah, now that would explain why the Gemara takes two stories that happen in two different times and tells them to us in one shot. Even though they happen in different locations, at different periods. Because it's not just that there's a common thread between these stories because all the characters are the same. But maybe the Gemara chose to put these two stories together because both of these stories illustrate Rabbi Akiva's unique perspective of looking out for the positive. To tell us that Rabbi Akiva has this attitude Look at the situation as it is and see the good that will come from it in the future. Maybe that's the easiest way to explain it. The only thing is that's going to raise three questions for us. 
Firstly, Aleph. If the purpose over here is to teach us Rabbi Akiva's principle, whatever Hashem does is for the good, why do we have to have the same principle taught to us three different times? What do the two stories <coughs> add that each story doesn't tell on its own? And what do the two stories add to Rabbi Akiva's principle, which is always see that Hashem does things for the good? <coughs> Number two, Bayes. Do we really think the other rabbis didn't feel this way? The principle of saying that everything Hashem does is for the best is not disputed in the Gemara and it's recorded as a halacha in Shulchan Aruch. So it's illogical to suggest the other rabbis disagreed with Rabbi Akiva on this principle. That can't be the reason we're getting to hear these stories. Particularly in the second story where they acknowledge Rabbi Akiva and they say, you comforted us. Just because they were comforted doesn't mean they had a view which they now no longer keep because they've now adopted Rabbi Akiva's new view of whatever Hashem does is for the good. So it's not that simple. And thirdly, if the whole purpose of these stories is to tell us Rabbi Akiva's principle, which is different to the other rabbis, and he does believe everything Hashem does is for the good, well, then he should have said so. He should have said, and then he could have expanded into detail if the details were necessary. So we're not yet clear on why that Gemara has to tell us these two stories, and specifically in the same conversation, if they happen in different times. What is the halachic basis for the d- dispute between Rabbi Akiva and his friends? So to get there, let's go back to the one question we asked before. What's Rabbi Akiva? Why is Rabbi Akiva surprised that they're crying? Let's analyze what the Gemara is telling. Us. The time of the Tmir from Rabbi Akiva Mipnei Matem Boichin is there's a really simple reason why Rabbi Akiva is surprised that they're crying. He's not surprised that they're crying, he's surprised that they're crying now. If they only started to cry when they heard the sounds of rejoicing from Rome, or need fear not before. As the Fun Mukh then indicates, Azerbachia is Nitzelib de Metzimidia, Azerbachia is Batoikov, means they're not just crying because they know the Romans are in power, because they knew that even before they heard their noise. They knew about Rome's supremacy even before they began this journey. In fact, that's why they were on the journey. The only reason they're going to Rome is to try and mitigate some of the terrible decrees the Romans had put out against the Jewish people. So, embarking on this journey is a reason to cry, not just hearing the sounds of Rome. Likewise, in the second story, they're not crying because the base Hamikdash was destroyed. Because when they see evidence of the destruction of the base Hamikdash, the Gemara tells us they tear their clothes. It doesn't tell us that they cry at that point. Something about seeing this fox is what triggers their, their crying. Question is what? Well, that's what Rabbi Akiva wants to know. That's why he asked them. So now why are you crying? And what has suddenly popped into view now that you haven't seen before? Which is now the reason to start crying. So they explain, their emphasis to Rabbi Kiva is as follows. We're not just crying over the Churban, we're crying over the fact that look how good and solid Rome is, even after they've done their job. We understand why Rome had to be a superpower to do their job, but the job is done. When they're talking about the tranquility of Rome versus the, the burnt base Amigdash, what they mean is as follows. The fact that Rome is doing well materially didn't bother them and certainly didn't get them to cry. To the country, they saw that as part of the plan and part of the dignity of the Jewish people. To have a powerful Rome as the aggressor is dignified for the Jewish people. Because the Pasuk tells us that the only one who could destroy the base Amigdash has to be a powerful, respectable nation. The concept of shame is relative to who is shaming the person and what the status of the person being shamed is. When Debesha has to employ 
the most powerful, respectable superpower of the time in order to bring down our base. I mean, there's this dignity in that nobody else could touch us. That's why when the, these rabbis respond to Rabbi Kiva, they don't focus on They're not saying, first, they destroyed the Beis HaMikdash and look, their life is good. The fact that they had a good, powerful nation is actually in our favor because because it reduces the amount of shame with having been the victims of this aggression. That's not what bothers them. A powerful superpower destroying the base Amigdosh is a, like a, an endorsement of the Jewish people. But now they are saying Rome is still secure and tranquil in that after the base Amigdash has already been burnt and destroyed. That is That's a desecration of Hashem's name. As it is a desecration of the Jewish people. Especially when you consider that the only reason Rome had to be a superpower is because in order to destroy the base Amigdash it has to be a dignified attack. Well, now the job is over. The base Amigdash has been destroyed. Why are they still secure? Why are they still powerful? That's what bothered them. And on similar lines, in the second story, they see the fox run out of the Kodesh HaKadoshim. They don't see this as just the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. That was the Abish's plan. But why does it have to be in a way that is such scorn to the Jewish people and to Hashem? Think about it. This is a place a Jewish person is not allowed to approach. Even the holiest Jew, the Koyen Godel. Even the Koyen Godel can only enter there once a year and only in the exact specified way, following the correct protocols during the Avoidah. That Kohen Gadol all year round is considered a stranger, a foreigner, a trespasser if he goes into the Kodesh HaKadoshim. And now we have foxes running around over there. What an affront to Hashem. That's what bothers them. In other words, the real complaint is, Yes, we accept. They should decree the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh and the subsequent Golos. But why does it have to be in a way that is so desecrating and so denigrating to Hashem and to the Jewish people? Firstly, what's, this, what's, so, uh, what's so offensive? Why do the Romans have to remain a superpower? Once their job is done, they should disappear. And the fact that there is a prophecy that the Beis Hamikdash will be plowed over like a field, it could have been the Beis Hamikdash. Other areas of the Beis Hamikdash. Why does it have to be the Kodesh Hakadoshim that is the part that is so ruined and exposed? A place that even the holiest Jew is considered a trespasser if he goes there at the wrong time. This is what's bothering these sages: the extent of Chilul Hashem associated with the Churban to which Rabbi Akiva says, you worried about the fact that Rome is still secure and tranquil. How much more so is due to us? Meaning, you're right. Right now, there's a terrible desecration of Hashem's name and a terrible desecration of the dignity of the Jewish people because Rome is secure. But the result that will produce is far greater reward and goodness for us. Because that's the, that's the process that Debeshter uses. What happens to the bad guys is multiplied in terms of the goodness that will happen to us, the good guys. Means Rabbi Akiva is looking at this terrible devastation, acknowledging that it is true, and yet saying it is a catalyst for greater good that will come afterwards, and that's what I'm going to focus on. 
And at Derech Zayn, Svet and Sipur, even more compelling is in the second story. Vibald, as in Evofun Chorban, is Mekuyim Gevarin, and the full Stomas. Yes, there's a, there's a prophecy about the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh. And yes, it didn't have to necessarily mean that the Kodesh HaKadoshim would be so exposed, but it was. That means that that Nevo was fulfilled in the most complete way. Evidence is because there's a fox running around in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Says Rabbi Akiva, is das aichocha? That proves to us as the nevuas hagiulo from Zechariah that mekuyim verim beifin achinayla. I had no doubt, obviously, that a positive nevuah from Zechariah about Mashiach is going to happen, but I didn't know if it would happen to the nth. I didn't know if it would happen in the most extreme fashion. Now that I see that the prophecy of destruction happened in the most extreme fashion, it satisfies me and it makes me joyous to know that the the prophecies of restoration will be in the most inc- incredible fashion possible. Since by Mnit given can Suffolk has for Sholem as the Nevoah Vet Mukimber, and he didn't doubt the prophecy. The Suffolk is not given in a Mofen Akim, he just didn't know how much or how brilliant this prophecy would be in its fulfillment. Rabbi Akiva was conscious of the fact that there are many promises in the Torah that could be fulfilled partway and not fully, and therefore he wanted to know if this prophecy would be fully realized. That's why he brings specifically the Pasuk of the plowing of a field because that has significance. Because only by plowing a field can you can then have things that grow and you'll be able to collect your produce not only ordinary produce but a hundredfold of what you had sowed not only quantity but the quality of the actual wheat it will be giant wheat as the prophecy goes, that there'll be such an abundance that when the people are coming to plow, there's still going to be people harvesting from the last time. So when Rabbi Kiva sees that the prophecy of Uriah was so extreme in its fulfillment, so from that he realizes that obviously the Nevoa of Zechariah about the future Gula was going to be in the best possible way. That's why he brings specifically that pasuk about plowing over the base amigdash because if you look at a plowed field, it looks like the area has been destroyed, but that's never the intention. In fact, plowing is not destructive; it is the only way that the field can achieve its purpose and goal. But that the Earth should yield its produce. Only by plowing the field, then things will grow. The better job you do of plowing the field, the better the yield will be of the things that grow in that field. Which is exactly what he wanted to reflect onto the base amigdash. The base amigdash is b'dugmatzucharisha. Destroying the base amigdash is a plowing concept. Which precipitates a far greater, more powerful type of geula that will follow on the river. Therefore, when Rabbi Akiva sees that the plowing process, the golos, is absolute, to the extent that it even includes plowing over and destroying the Kedosh HaKadoshim, as by him given so that helped Rabbi Akiva to perceive and acknowledge and be able to share that the Geula is going to happen in the best possible way. Now we said right at the beginning that there have to be halachic principles upon which Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues differ. Let's see if we can understand the, the nature of those halachic principles. Let's understand now the difference of opinion between Rabbi Kiva and his colleagues. Their debate hinges on a principle that you find debated about many mitzvahs. What's the debate? When I look at the performance of a mitzvah now, do I have to take into consideration elements that may impact the mitzvah later? Let's use an example. A person's not well, and so the doctors say you have a choice. Either you fast on some gedalia, or you're going to fast on kippur. You won't manage both. So, is this person allowed to fast on some gedalia? Is this person required to fast on some gedalia? Which is technically a, tra- a, a, a tradition, a rabbinic tradition. Because it's going to place in jeopardy a Torah requirement to fast on Yom Kippur. 
So does his de- decision about his mitzvah now hinge on what it may, the impact may be in the future? And of course, the other side of the argument would be, don't fast some gedalia because you need to reserve your strength to fulfill the Torah-based mitzvah of Yom Kippur. Okay, so there's this principle, do we determine how to, how to behave in a mitzvah now based on considerations for the future? That is the line of thinking that divides the opinions of Rebbe Kiva and his colleagues. They're both looking at a situation where currently there is a desecration of Hashem's name. But Rabbi Kiva says from this current desecration will precipitate a far greater Kiddush Hashem and reward for the Jewish people in the future. Which one trumps the other? The fact is right now there's a terrible desecration of Hashem's name. The fact that later on great things will happen is irrelevant now. Now we cry. We look at the current affairs. Right now there's a desecration happening. The correct response right now is to cry over it. Rabbi Kiva looks at it completely different. The way that you handle what's going on now is with a vision of the future. Rebbe Kiva says this desecration now will be the catalyst for far greater sanctification of Hashem's name in the future when Mashiach comes. That influences the way he views the current situation to the extent that he's joyous about it. Let's look at another perspective of halacha, which is similar, but a little bit different. Help us clarify this further. So that question was, do you determine how you behave in the present based on the future? Now we're going to look at it from a slightly different perspective. Do you sometimes compromise a detail of a mitzvah in favor of an overall upgrade of that mitzvah? And this particular scenario is actually a bit closer to what we're arguing about. Let's say that you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah and you can fill all of the requirements of that mitzvah. But it will come at the expense of doing the mitzvah in the most beautiful, upgraded way possible. On the other hand, or, alternatively, I could do the mitzvah in the very, very most beautiful way possible, but there'll be a particular detail I won't be able to fulfill. It's not a detail that is a make or break. So again, you have to ask, what's most important, to have all the details or to have the most beautiful upgraded version of the mitzvah? So here's an example. It's an example, it's not exactly precise. In the Shaila, so Achronim by Brismila, a very well-known debate in contemporary halacha about when to schedule a bris. If you have the bris in the morning, let them and then you're going to fulfill the principle that you should always do a mitzvah at the first opportunity. But the crowd will be smaller. And there's another element of hidr. What makes a mitzvah beautiful is that there's a large crowd who participates. On the other hand, if I'm going to delay the bris till later in the day, so now I'll have this beautiful hidr. And I'll lose the detail of do a mitzvah at the first opportunity. So, but I could potentially uh, now fulfill the, uh, the, the, the hidder of having so many people. Which one takes precedence? Doing the mitzvah with, so to speak, all the details or doing a mitzvah in the most beautiful way possible? That's one example of many others. If I delay doing a mitzvah, maybe I'll be able to do it better. So, for example, let's delay Kiddush Levana to Motzei Shabbos because we'll have more people in Shul. Let's delay shaking Lulav and Esrach until we get a better set of Hadassim or Arovas to, to, to replace the ones that are dried out. So, is it better to delay the mitzvah in order to have a better version of the mitzvah or just to do the basics and do it ASAP? 
That is part of the halachic basis for the difference of opinion between Rabbi Kiva and his colleagues. Yes, the Jews will be rewarded for having fulfilled what they once. And the fact is that Debishta's name will be sanctified in the future. Everybody gets and acknowledges that, including Rabbi Gamriel and, and, and co. The shaila is, the overriding question is, what is happening now versus what's going to happen in the future? Right now the Romans are sitting pretty and we are devastated by the destruction of the base. And there are foxes running around the place that even a Jew is not allowed to enter. Right now, there's a desecration of Hashem's name. The principle of sanctifying Hashem's name is currently absent. But on the other hand, in the future, then there'll be a tremendous Kiddush Hashem and great reward for the Jewish people and the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies of Zacharia. In an inyan for Hidur on Tesefes, it's going to be much greater, much more beautiful. In Erech Yomim, Briyaz, Chula Bichlalusam, good health, long life. In Kiddush Hashem Shemaim, So what's better? Hurry things up and get rid of the current Chilal Hashem or delay things so that you can get a better version of the Gula in the future. Rabbi and his colleagues say, right now, the Ebishter's name is being desecrated. Yes, without a base amigdash, there is a lack of sanctification of Hashem's name. But it doesn't have to be as bad as this. It doesn't have to be a desecration. Don't tell us about what's going to happen in the future. Don't tell us that later on there's going to be this great addition and upgrade. Right now, there's a, there's a devastating situation of Amelia. So they start to cry. Rabbi Kiva has a completely different perspective. Rabbi Kiva says, if there's a way to upgrade the entire mitzvah, that's more important than missing a particular piece of the mitzvah. On their far is the spätte dicke hidden ice of Inclodus in Kiddush Hashem Geiveret von Itzdich and Chesaren in the Metzen von Kiddush Hashem. Therefore, from a Yekiva's perspective, the fact that in the future there's going to be this exponentially greater degree of both reward for the Jewish people and sanctification of Hashem's name, that trumps the fact that right now there's a loss. On their far, Mesachik, and therefore he's joyous about what's going to happen. Tosis Bechlodus, that's an overarching perspective on what Rabbi Akiva adds to the story that the others weren't necessarily looking at. But now we're going to drill it down into Rabbi Kiva's principle and into the stories themselves. So once we look at the two stories, we can see, and it's obvious from the response of Rabbi Gamriel Vachaveirov, that the second story is much more compelling even than the first. And in all of the details we've discussed, which means, you're going to see an advantage in how to perceive that whatever Hashem does is for the best. We're going to see in the second story a more compelling argument to consider future considerations in the present and and the second story will also solidify for us why it's such a compelling argument to say well if I can do the whole thing better in the future that's better than having uh, uh, all the details now without the same hider when Rabbi Kiva says that everything Hashem does is for the best is the period what he means is right now it's not pleasant not to mechuvan from them is letov, but it's going to be good in the future. You see that from the story of Rabbi Akiva. Of a menzetos from the dugmas to gemara brengt by Rabbi Akiva atzma. Look at the story that dos was erot genechtet in felt nicht in shtot. The fact that he had to sleep in the field overnight and he couldn't get a house in the city, and not only did he sleep in the field, and not falorans and chamor and tanrigol, and he lost both his donkey and his rooster. Und das licht ist verloschen geworden, and the lamp blew out. All of that was a great thing for him after the fact because it saved his life. In other words, at the time, it was an, an uncomfortable uh, experience and he lost things. But it's lit have of it. It was going to be good in the future. 
And that's, by the way, got an alachic component to it as well when it comes to the brochas that we're supposed to say over different incidents that happen to us in our lives, says the Gemara. If a person has a misfortune, but it will later have positive results, and it gives the example, let's say his field floods, once the flood water subside, there will be a benefit because it'll have an irrigated field. So, but the brocha that you're supposed to say is because that's the brocha you say when something negative has happened and something negative happened, even though later on it will have positive results. And the other rabbis agree with that. But now Rabbi Kiva says, I'm going to tell, teach you something else. The uftu benide dan is, as in the raw gufa, here he's saying, normally means something bad happened, but don't worry, good will come from it later. Right now I see this fox running out of the Kedush HaKadoshim. Rabbi Kiva says, new lenses. We're not just going to say, this is bad, but it will be good later. Now he's seeing something brand new. This is the beginning of something positive. Like the Medrash Rabbah tells us, the Pasek says, that David totally used up all of his anger. Says the Medrash, David poured out his anger on the structure of the Beis HaMikdash and thereby spared the Jewish people. On Famously, the Gemara tells us that's why when Osaf speaks about the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, it's not called a dirge, it's called a mizmar, a song. Why? Because it's the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash that spares us. What was it that, so to speak, exhausted Hashem's anger? The fact that the devastation is complete. Foxes on the base, Amigdash, the Pasa continues, Yushalayim is completely devastated. So what's Rabbi Kiva teaching? That in the current negative, actually therein lies the positive. But you don't see it so clearly in the first story. Because in the first story, even though yes, Rabbi Kiva was joyous. And yes, there is a perspective that he adds over here, which is new from just the generic principle that whatever Hashem does is for the good. We'll see two ways how there's an advantage here. Because number one, when a person says whatever Hashem is going to do is for the good, we know it's going to be good, but we don't know yet what the good is going to be. And secondly, it's something negative, which will be for the good. But let's say none of the negative happened. That also would have been good. If Rabbi Akiva's uh, donkey hadn't been killed, that also would have been a good thing. Let's say that he didn't have any donkey to start with. He still would have been saved. Normally when we say, we don't know how it's going to pan out. And there is another way. It could have also been good. Whereas in this case, he says, He says, this is exactly what's going to happen to us. I can identify what the good is. And if there had never been the greatness of Rome, there would never be the greatness of the Jew- Jewish people who are the Kalvachomer. If that's what the bad guys get, how much more so us? But besides that, in that story, you don't see that the celebration of Rome is the beginning of the good of the Jewish people. You'll only see that in the second story. So the second story highlights for us Rabbi Kivas Chiddush. It's not just that Hashem is going to do things for the good in the future. The good is fermenting now in the bad. And that's going to reflect back on the two other questions, which were the questions of, do I consider the future when I'm deciding what to do now? And Hidr Mitzvah, that will be done later, does that trump fulfilling all of the details of the Mitzvah if I do them now? The principle that how things are going to be done in the future is a consideration that I need to consider now when I'm doing the mitzvah now. Or likewise, knowing that in the future I can do something in a far better way makes me or allows me to delay things till the future instead of doing it now with all the, 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 the details in, in place. 
So what is it? Because we're saying the future overrides the present. In other words, we're looking from the perspective it says, well, right now it's not the ideal. I'm going to be missing a piece of a mitzvah. Or right now I should be focused on the now. Or right now there's a loss. Not in my lesha, but osin. On the hid of a chlal is goyva machriyat emichesorin. But I know there's going to be value in the future. Or I know I'm going to be able to have hidder in the future. So that's the greater consideration. That's exactly how the first story goes. Right now it's a problem because Rome is sitting pretty. But don't worry because later on it's all going to resolve. Things will be good for us. That's not what happens in the second story. The second story is not saying we'll consider the future valuable enough to override the loss of the present. No, the second story is saying you're not seeing the future is in the present. The second story is, is It's not just that the facts of the Geula in the future override the considerations of loss in the present. Now, in the piula shabayva v'chula zeta nordi malish should be also. Rabbi Akiva is innovating over here that while you're looking at the destruction, only see the fermenting of the positive for the future. Thus says as the hidur from kiddush shem shemayim shem yisovas vetarois kumen leosid, the great overwhelming upliftment of the Jewish people and of Hashem's name that's going to happen in the future. Zeta Rabbi Akiva kilu vidos hotzichon gaimin in the piula shabayva. Rabbi Akiva seeing it already starting in the story. In dem vos zet is what right now looks like a terrible loss and disaster actually is the beginning of the of the good. That's why it's only in the second story where the other rabbi said, "Okay, you have now comforted us twice over." Nitin derisha, not the first story. What Rabbi Akiva is bringing to the table over here that the other sages didn't initially see, which is why they were originally crying, is a double perspective. He's saying not only is this a reason to sell it to, to be joyous, but there's even more reason. They looked at the story and they saw something so devastating that it made them cry. So Rabbi Kiva says, hang on a second, don't only focus on the bad, also focus on the good. That there's going to be the ultimate Kiddush Hashem in the future. Don't only look at what's going to happen in the future. Point one. Rabbi Kiva says you have to realize it's not like there's stage one, which is the bad, difficult phase, and then later stage two, which is the great phase. He says it's the plowing of the field. That's how things grow. The destruction of the Beis HaMikdash has the value of plowing. Which is naturally going to segue into growth. That's why they say, You comforted us twice. Why? One comfort is because he comforted us by letting us know that the future is much brighter than we expected. And based the second comfort is as the is in the that that is already in play right now. We don't have to wait for the bad times to pass. And the Hechachifdem is deceived. How does Rebbe Kiva know this? Because he says they are Edim. The Pasuk tells us, The Pasuk puts the two of them together. How do Edim work? They have to work together. The Pasuk doesn't say there's Uriah, one thing, Zachariah, another thing. It's a single entity called testimony. Right? Like the, the Gemara tells us, anytime the Torah uses the word aid, it means two, unless the Torah specifies otherwise. You take two Edim, they make a single testimony. The two Nevois come together as a single testimony to Geula. Mashenka, you only see that in the in the second story. Mashenka, but the Mershon Sipur. Whereas in the first story, where Rabbi Kiva Masachik Sribenta Malover Yitzen Kachler Yitzen Alachas Kama Vechamo, where the basis for Rabbi Akiva's joy was, if this is what they're getting, we'll get even more. Is as nola shitas Rabbi Akiva. That's something Rabbi Akiva believed. Nor the other Tanoim of Zayin Gebliben by Zayadei. The other sages don't change their view. They say no. The Chesaron right now is too great. It needs to be cried over right now.
Aber fragt es in dem davon ablehnen und sehen die Meilen und Teufel von einer Sache äußere zu sein, von einer zweiten Sache ewere zu sein, especially because the whole principle over there is, you have to work out the positive out of the negative. Und auf dem hat er keine Reihe gebracht vom Pasuk, wie in dem zweiten Zipper. Rabbi Kiva doesn't bring a Pasuk to prove that that's how you're supposed to look at things. Whereas the principle of seeing the good in the Golos, that he brings a Pasuk for. Von welchem es auch wissen, wenn wir Kosher kommen, dann geht es zum ersten Zipper. Now we get why the Gemara felt it necessary for us to know the names of all the characters in the story, because who they are actually speaks to the essence of their story, particularly who Rabbi Akiva is. It explains their difference of opinions. Rabbi Gamaliel is given Nasi Ayesomi Shevet Yehuda. Rabbi Gamaliel was a Nasi, he was a great person from Shevet Yehuda, belongs to the category of Yisra. Rabbi Lozman Azari is given a Koyen, Deir Asir Le Ezra. Rabbi Lozman Azari is a Koyen. Rabbi Yeshua is given a Levi Minam Shorim. Rabbi Yeshua was one of the singers in the choir in the base of Migdash, he was a Levi. And Rabbi Akiva is given a Ben Gerim. Rabbi Akiva comes from Gerim. Who's best positioned to understand the positive and the negative? Somebody comes from Gerim. But Pashas, where can Zenun Ufton in Liumaze, in Sadahifek, who has the greatest insight into and the greatest uh, effect on the negative in the world? Who has the capacity to break down the most powerful negative? And therefore the capacity to be able to see doubled comfort in what everybody else recognizes as destruction. Because they're the person who lived that in his life. Similar to what the Gemara tells us in a different context. That Ovadia was specifically the prophet who... who, who um, predicts the downfall of Edom, because Ovadia himself was from Edom and he converted to Judaism, take wood in order to make an axe. Whereas if you're somebody who comes from good Yichas, you cannot see this principle that within the negative is the possibility of positive. And that's why they have these different views halachically. Do I look at the present or do I look at the future? It's based on their experiences. Do I look at the detail of a mitzvah or do I look at the overall upgrade of the mitzvah? Specifically Rabbi Akiva, who comes from Gerim. And only started to learn Torah when he was 40. Had he looked at his current status, he would never become Rabbi Akiva. But his ability to see the future, how things would turn out in the future. And this is which is actually what happened to him. And he saw it as clearly as he saw the water boring through the rock. That's how he became the great Rabbi Akiva that he became. Now we can go back to our original question. Nachamu, nachamu, the double comfort and why it is so relevant after we've been struck twice. When we say we were struck twice, it doesn't only mean the destruction of the base Amigdash and the fact that we're in Golos. Which led, of course, to a lack of sanctification of Hashem's name. But as we said, there is a desecration of Hashem's name happening, a terrible desecration. More than just the fact that there's destruction. Like all the examples in those stories that we've just read. Because there's a double destruction, the removal of positive and the introduction of negative, that's why we're comforted twice. Firstly, there's going to be the comfort of showing what the value and purpose of the Churban was. That was all just to pave the way for the incredible revelations that would happen in the time of Mashiach. Besides that, but we'll actually see not only that it was a catalyst for good, but that there was good within the goddess itself. 
Nit nor vetzich onen as his kedai gedel hayiridav agolus abit tzutzukumen today he suffered for hiderins managiula. Not only will we say it was worth the difficulty because of what we're going to get afterwards. Now mehert as the teva umayle mehert on the teva umayle that he suffered bechubin vegolus gufa. We see the positive in the golus and if them zokt men oit chavai can enough to be to the extent that we say thank you today b'shtaf for the troubles. This is also alluded to in Pashas Vaischan and as well, as Rashi quotes from the Gemara, when the Pasuk tells us that in that Pasuk that says that you will be in the land, it says that there's a hint that the Gemachev and Ishantim is how long the Jews would be in Israel before they'd be exiled, 850 years, 52 years. Says the Gemara, who hikdim vehiglam the safe chesmes vachamishim vehikdim veishanim v'lemvenishantim. They were brought it forward two years after eight hundred and fifty years they were exiled. Kedeshelo yiskaim byim kelvoit tevedons that they wouldn't be susceptible to the rest of the pasuk, which says, God forbid, they'd be lost. Daniel tells us that they hastened bringing about the destruction. That that was actually positive, that they brought it two years earlier so that it wouldn't be as devastating as originally predicted. In other words, not only will there be an, an advantage to having gone through Golos, like the Psukim actually tell us, that there'll be advantage to being in Golos because it will force us to call out to Hashem. But there's a double value, the value that because he brings the Golos earlier, that's going to mitigate some of the predictions. Through our efforts, we will now, in Hashem, very soon experience the double comfort from Hashem and the ultimate comfort which Hashem says will come from Anoichi from the essence of Hashem with Mashiach now.